Welcome to Wealth Made Simple with Shaz, where you'll learn how to master your money through business, property, and tax saving strategies. Your host has collectively helped his clients make tens of millions of pounds in additional profits through these strategic approaches to business. Introducing Shaz Nawaz, an award-winning chartered accountant, property tax expert, entrepreneur, and property investor. What I did was, uh, I thought Christmas had come early, and I bought this piece of land, uh, 11 point, I think, 8, 11.8 acres or thereabouts, for £150,000, uh, and then we applied for planning, and my planning consultant at the time was the former chairman of the planning committee. So I thought he obviously knows what he's talking about. Uh, I'd never been to see the site. And uh, we put in a, a planning application. I think it was six, five bedroom houses with triple garages. Uh, and we had about 30 odd objections, which, which was odd, by the way, because I later on established there were only about 15 people who live in the village. So I don't know where the other 15 objections came from. Anyhow, uh, that didn't go down too well. So that particular planning uh, application was rejected. Went back to the drawing board, uh, got rid of uh, that particular planning consultant, appointed a new planning consultant from London, who's a planning barrister, and we applied for planning. Uh, and he said we should apply for 14 three-bedroom homes, which at the time seemed like a fantastic idea. So we did. Uh, and about two or three days or a, a week before our planning application went in, the local housing plan changed, which meant that that particular area where I was applying for planning was outside uh, the development area for the local housing plan. So as soon as the, the application went in and the council had collected their fees, they gave me the terrible news that this wasn't going to happen. Now you can imagine having filed two planning applications and the architect fees and the planning consultant fees uh, and the planning application fee in itself was something like £12,000 for the council per uh, application. Uh, so I've now spent best part of another £80,000-£90,000 on top of the £150,000 I'd spent on buying the land. So when uh, Andy and Lloyd uh, were talking earlier uh, about making mistakes, uh, that was obviously uh, a very big mistake. However, because I had a, a good planning consultant, and I know Andy and Lloyd have their own uh, planning consultant in John McDermott, uh, when the second refusal letter came through, something which my planning consultant picked up on was they said that that particular site was in an isolated location, which obviously meant nothing to me, but it meant a lot to the planning, con uh, planning consultant. And what it meant basically was there's something called paragraph 79, where we can build a house in an isolated area, but it has to be of an exceptional design. So we then uh, put in an application uh, for a, I think this is a six bedroom house and I'm going to scroll down here to kind of show you some of the photos which I hope you'll be able to see. Uh, as I scroll down, Andy and Lloyd, can you see these? And so I appointed a an architect who specializes in, in building or 
creating houses of, of an exceptional design. So this is the design of the house in the front. Uh, as you can see, it's a, it's a very special and unique design. It's very different. It has to be different in order to uh, meet the very strict and stringent criteria uh, of being of exceptional design. This is it uh, on the inside. Again, you can see the kind of the, the I'm not sure if you can see the detail of the woodwork uh, through uh, Zoom, but it, it is a phenomenal design. And then this planning application went in and it's going to be built on this particular base here. And, then, and that's the house built on the base. Uh, it's it's eco-friendly and it's got all this wonderful, wonderful stuff in there, by the way, uh, which I'd never heard of. This is the design on the back. It, went, it then went in and the council insisted we go to the design council for them to approve this house as being of exceptional design. And this is again uh, some of the uh, internal design. So we paid, I think it was £5,000 uh, to have a meeting with uh, the design council. Uh, and there's, there's usually three of them. Uh, one was a landscape architect. Uh, one was a, uh, a, a, a normal architect. And the third one was an experienced person in, in property. I forget what her expertise was. But uh, having sat and then I paid them £5,000, paid my landscape architect, paid my architect and paid my uh, planning consultant to be there. That cost me another £7,500. So it's costing me £12,500 being in that meeting. Uh, and they come back with one really minor objection. And based on that, uh, they were able to state that the house did not meet the criteria of being an exceptional design. It was a really poxy, poxy excuse, by the way, uh, according to my architect. So then the council said, you now have to change the design and come back. So we change the design, go back, pay another 12,500 pounds, go to the de design council. The same three people sat there again uh, and we've changed exactly what they wanted us to change. And they still object. They still object and say, no, this uh, is, it doesn't meet the criteria. Uh, so we go back to the planning director of East Lindsay Council and say, we say, we've done exactly what you wanted us to do. Look, this is the criteria. We believe we meet it. There's absolutely no way we're going to get the, uh, the design council to agree to this. Uh, so we suggest we should uh, apply for planning and you should support it. And he said, apply for the planning and we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, so we did, uh, and lo and behold, knowing my luck, guess what happened? It went to the planning committee. Uh, and that was about three months ago, so just before COVID, uh, and I, they had, I think, nine people on the planning committee, five voted in favor, four voted against. So by the skin of our teeth, the planning application went through. So now I have the pleasure or the challenge of trying to uh, build that house. Um, I've got no idea whether I'm going to build it, whether I'm going to sell it, but it's costing me £250,000 as it is. I'm being told once it's fully built out, it's going to be worth something around uh, 1 1.4, £1 1.5 million. Pounds. That was, that, that was pre-COVID where things are right now. I have no idea whatsoever. 
so so that that's that there just before covid something else that i did uh was i bought a piece of land i say bought i didn't pay for it but we we agreed an option agreement on a piece of land in boston again in lincolnshire 3.5 acres with outline planning for 40 houses on uh, for sale for 395,000 pounds we agreed to buy it for 350,000 pounds after having agreed it when we when we then realized that the planning application had to be submitted by the 14th of may so we had about two and a half three months i then went back to the agent and said there's absolutely no way we can submit a planning application within uh, three months without paying extra fees to our uh, architect and our planning consultant so i then was able to further reduce the price from 350,000 pounds down to 315,000 pounds which worked pretty well we've now applied for the for the full planning which should go through because the, they've obviously got outline planning and it's for 40 houses uh six of them are affordable either the year 34 a combination of two bedroom three bedroom and four bedroom i think we've got four four bedroom and about four two bedroom and about 26 odd uh three bedroom houses and only today we've had our second offer from a local developer uh who's offered us eight hundred fifty thousand pounds to buy the piece of land with planning uh if we want to sell it to them uh the other obviously alternative is uh, we can build it out ourselves. So if that goes through and we sell it, it's going to be—it's costing us four hundred thousand pounds, including all the planning fees and costs. If we sell it for for eight fifty, four hundred fifty thousand pounds again for six months worth of work isn't too bad going. Uh, I'm sure Andy and Lloyd would agree to some extent, but I'm sure they'd probably say to me, "Hang out and build out the forty units yourself." So those are just two examples of a number of developments I'm doing. There are, are a few others as well, but I'm not going to bore you with those uh, simply because you're here to uh, listen to some of the, or you're, you're here for me to answer some questions on tax. So we're going we're to go straight into that. I started uh, my accountancy practice back in 2003 as a partnership. And then in 2009, I bought out uh, my partner uh, just because we had a, a very different vision for how an accountancy practice should run so i bought him out and ever since then i've been a a, a sole trader we specialize in, in working with property investors uh, simply for two reasons uh, the first one is as my clients became more affluent and more successful uh, they started investing in property therefore i started learning more about property uh, and in 2005 i bought my first property uh, and ever since had a bug to invest in property so since then i've been investing in property and of course being an investor I've then learned the skills of what it requires to be an investor stroke developer, but at the same time have guided, supported, advised uh, hundreds of property investors uh, over the last uh, 18 odd years. Alongside that, I also have a children's day nursery because I'm a, a big fan of having uh, multiple streams of income. So I've got one day nursery. I've just uh, taken on an operations director and we're looking to scale up that particular business to hopefully get to 40 or 50 uh, centers in the next seven to 10 years. Alongside that, I have a coaching and consulting business. So I've conducted over 3000 business growth consultations, both with property investors and general businesses. Uh, and in, through that period, I've helped clients raise over 150 million pounds uh, in investment and have added 
at least at least 200 million pounds in bottom line profits uh, through those consultations uh, so uh, and I still do a lot of coaching and speaking and writing and uh, Lloyd's referred to the tax book which you can probably see right behind me over here in fact this is my latest book which is called the property investors tax guide which came out uh, in February and I'm writing my next book uh, with the publisher which is called the entrepreneur's cookbook so they wanted me to uh, write about some of my experiences in terms of what makes a good business and a good uh, business owner stroke entrepreneur so that was due to come out uh, just before Easter but because of Covid it's been postponed and it should be released around about September October time uh, above and beyond uh, obviously uh, having a my not obviously but uh, above and beyond having my coaching consulting business I invest in property so the deals I'm working on right now two I've shared with you but the third one is a commercial conversion we bought a commercial property converting it into 12 flats six one bedroom and six two bedroom flats and alongside that just finishing off uh, a smaller development of five two bedroom flats that's nearly finished work stopped because of, of covid so we're going to finish that off and look to sell those and just before covid uh, we finished off a development of our conversion of 21 flats uh, 15 uh, one bedroom and six two bedroom flats uh, we bought that for 395,000 pounds from my side no money down so that other people's money my joint venture partner paid for the refurb which cost us 600,000 pounds or thereabouts for about 550 uh, and, and it was valued just before kind of covid really kicked in at 1.6 million pounds which was down valued really i think it's, it's worth about 2.1 million pounds but even 1.6 million pounds works well for us we're going to keep those units pretty much every single one of those is on rent so that's that's that uh, and then as a as a fifth business i have a credit hire business uh, which in very simple terms is if somebody has a car accident and their insurance company can't give them a, a, a like for like car we give them a, a higher car and then we bill uh, the insurance company for them having that car so those are my, the five businesses that i'm involved in uh, on a day-to-day -day basis if you were to do a joint venture with somebody uh, and you don't pay anything for the site uh, and you get 50% of the profits how should you look to structure that deal is that about right so I guess and I, and I think you, you also said that the land owner or the property owner would pay capital gains tax so my first question to you is how many units are on that piece of land or on that development okay so uh, if somebody has told him that he would be paying uh, capital gains tax that is incorrect uh, depending on whether he holds the, the site in a limited company or his own name he'll either pay corporation tax or income tax not capital gains tax uh, because that development uh, will be treated uh, as a trading business from your point of view ideally you want to get to a uh, scenario where if you're if you are purely investors you want to be part of that development as an investor and claim investors relief and very 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 simply how that works is if you subscribe to shares so it has to be a limited company by the way if you subscribe to shares on day one and you keep your money in that company for three years when you take your proceeds out you only pay 10 10 percent tax on those proceeds 
so this may seem or sound very similar to those who are aware, like Entrepreneurs Relief, but Entrepreneurs Relief has changed from 10 million pounds down to a million pounds. And now it's called, I think, Business Asset Disposal Relief as opposed to Entrepreneurs Relief. So the lifetime limit uh, both you, uh, Lloyd and Andy have is 10 million pounds each. So you would you want to think about how can we get this uh, site into a limited company if it already isn't into in a limited company and how can we subscribe to those shares? Obviously, if it's an existing company, we're then going to have to restructure that somehow, uh, which we can do, by the way, into a new company and you subscribe to those shares uh, when that new, new company is formed. But then when you take your profit out, you're only going to pay 10% tax on it. Now, 10% tax is the lowest rate of tax you can pay uh, in this country, of course, apart from obviously having your personal allowance. So that's the ideal scenario where you want to get to. If you can't do that for some reason, uh, then the next best thing for you to do, of course, is to own your shares in that company, if it's a company, through your own limited company. So you can either have a separate SPV uh, or you can have an existing limited company which owns the shares uh, in that company. Uh, and obviously to take out your uh, profit. But the landowner might not want to give you those shares uh, because he, he, he would say, if I give you the shares, you own half of the asset. Well, we can restrict that or we can have an agreement in place whereby you don't own the shares, but your profit goes into your limited company, which would therefore mean you pay 19% corporation tax on your share of the profits. Obviously, 19% is higher than uh, the 10% through investors relief. Then your second challenge, if you want to take the money out, which I'm probably sure you two don't because you've got uh, uh, a number of streams of income, but if you wanted to, you'd have to pay income tax. So the big benefit of investors relief is that money will come into your personal hands. You won't pay corporation tax. Uh, you won't pay income tax because you're, you're, you're only going to pay the 10% uh, tax on the gain, uh, which is a capital gain. Uh, and that money comes into your personal bank account. The beauty then is obviously you can use those funds and invest them into future pro uh, projects uh, by way of, for example, a director's loan. So, so that new company will owe, owe that money to you. You can then charge interest on the director's loan. And then when that company makes profit, you can then draw down on your director's profit. When that company has cash flow, you can then draw down on the director's loan cash free, cash free, tax, tax free. Uh, so I've kind of run through that quickly, Lloyd. If you've got any questions, happy to answer them. But obviously, if you want, want to take this offline, more than happy to discuss with you offline. So the second question was, if I may, uh, uh, was, was, I don't know who it's from, by the way. So, so you can try and figure that out while I, re I read the question. And the question is, for example, uh, so, sorry, the question is, if I were to purchase a site with planning from a vendor who wished to take ownership of one of the newly built houses at the end, so the houses get built and then the, the existing person, uh, owner, then gets one of the houses, what price would the stamp duty be based on? Which is an interesting question. And then they give me an example here, uh, which is, for example, if the site is worth two million pounds right now and the finished house is worth a million pounds, we would essentially be paying three million pounds uh, for that particular development. However, would we just pay two million pounds SDLT right now? What would happen to the, to the stamp duty on the million pounds 
uh, for the house. I had somebody approach me about six months ago. They were buying some land with a house on it uh, and the SDLT, it was 1.25 million pounds and the SDLT came in at, I think, 128,000 uh, pounds. And their current advisors and their previous advisors, so they had, they had two sets of advisors, were both not able to show them a, a way out of it. Uh, and the solution was pretty simple, by the way. Uh, so we shared this solution with them. From 128,000, Sean, we bought the stamp duty down. I say bought, we brought the stamp duty down to 55,000 uh, pounds. But that was because they were able to obviously talk to us before they'd done the transaction. Sometimes people have done the transaction, then it's very hard to obviously undo the tax. It's pretty much uh, impossible in most scenarios. So, so, so it's good that you haven't done, done the deal yet. The challenge that, that you have is if there's an obligation for you to build the house, then that is a chargeable consideration for the purpose of stamp duty land tax. So the real tricky part, Sean, is for us to work out how much is that worth at the moment. Uh, and that you have to use market value, but because you're not selling a house to him right now, and there's an obligation that the house will be built. However, there's no guarantee that at the end he will get a house right now. Although you would say obviously best endeavors or whatever you want to call it in the in legal terms, you're going to build a house. Uh, that's not going to happen. And that is for tax purposes without meaning to get technical. And I usually try and stay away from technical jargon. But for the purpose of tax, that is called a chosen action, which basically means that the future, uh, the, there's a future unascertainable payment. So we, we don't know what it is. So what we have to do to keep things simple, and again, be happy to, to take this offline with you uh, because there are one or two different solutions that we could delve into to see if, if they would give you a more favorable outcome. But simply speaking, what we would have to do is we'd have to work out the value of your commitment right now, which is obviously two million pounds plus to build a house, uh, which wouldn't be a million pounds. Let's say it might end up being 500,000 pounds. If it were, if it were 500,000 pounds right now, what that means is you're going to save stamp duty land tax on at least the other 500,000 pounds, if that makes sense. So that would be your starting position. If your, uh, if the vendor is not interested in doing a joint venture with you, if you let me know, I will then happily explore a couple of other avenues for you to see if we can find a way around it. Uh, and and I, I'm sure there'll be something we can do through the agreement uh, of the vendor. But if not, then we need to establish the, the value of that million pound commitment now. And that's going to be less than the, the, the million because there is no house and there is no guarantee that that person will, will have a house Therefore, that million pound isn't worth a million right now, if that makes sense. So, so your SDLT will be low anyhow. So I hope, hopefully that kind of gives you some comfort and some confidence. So what I'm hearing, Richard, is you're probably going to have a, a lease agreement. Uh, and in that lease agreement, your trading company is going to be responsible for all the repairs and the insurance and the maintenance and the improvements. Uh, in which case, if your trading company registers for VAT, 
uh, then you can claim back the uh, VAT costs on the refurb. But something else which you, which you might want to consider, and, and I won't go into that today, uh, because that is a specific VAT issue, uh, which is outside developments, but linked with obviously uh, service accommodation is, you, if you're not already aware, you want to look at the tour operator's margin scheme, the TOM scheme. So see if that applies to you. If that applies to you, then the advice is, is going to change. Uh, so to keep it simple, if, if, if TOMS can apply to you, uh, which is going to be a bit of a stretch to do, uh, if it did, uh, then the advice is going to change. If TOMS doesn't apply and you've got company A which holds the asset, company B which is the trading entity, and company B is VAT registered, then company B can reclaim the VAT on the refurb costs and any other VAT it incurs because it's within the scope of VAT. Yeah. In terms of uh, the SAS, if you're lending money out, uh, if you can have a debenture or a guarantee uh, of some sort, of course that's 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 the best thing to do. But uh, is that going to be available? from the person that you're lending the money to. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on what their arrangement is uh, and how many different projects that they've got going on in that particular company. So always have some form of a charge or a debenture or a personal guarantee to protect your returns. But your question should be wider than that to some extent because when you say uh, investing in other businesses or, or projects, but if you're talking about property development projects, uh, then you you can't uh, do residential projects, but you can get involved in commercial projects. If you, you but you but you can buy land, obtain planning, and sell that through your SaaS. You can also get involved in a property development project, whereby you either own the land or buy the land with planning, uh, and then you start building, but you sell that development before it those properties are classed as residential dwellings uh, and that starts getting complicated as well so i'm not going to complicate that for you uh, but i'm going to assume when you say other businesses and other projects you mean other businesses uh, business ventures outside the world of property uh, uh, then you if it's debt finance of course then you want to have security if it's equity finance then you will become uh, a partner or a shareholder or a part of that particular project so that in itself gives you enough security uh, because you you'll own a certain percentage of that particular entity or that particular project so debt finance have security uh, equity obviously own the equity that gives you um, some ownership depending on uh, how much of that particular project that you own the, the problem you'll have is if you're 50-50 owners and you fall out, uh, then nobody has a majority shareholding, i.e. 51% or more. That then becomes problematic. You need to speak to a lawyer and, and cover that in terms of arbitration, mediation, or how to get out of that particular agreement. Uh, so if, was it Stephen? If he's on the call, I'm happy to take any questions from him, but I've kind of... Uh, shooting in the in the dark a little bit here, kind of assuming Lloyd what the question is really asking in terms of other pro projects. 
And, and, and something else interesting that you can do, which I would advocate, uh, and unfortunately Stephen's going to miss out on this advice here, and I think this, this is really cool uh, and an interesting uh, planning opportunity, is if you have a SaaS and you've got some cash in it uh, and you want to buy some land, what you could do is either buy the land in the SaaS or uh, do a joint venture with your existing company and get the SaaS to fund the property or fund the planning. And if it funds the planning, you can have an overage agreement where the majority of the profit goes into the SaaS. So in very simple terms, you end up sheltering most of the planning gain uh, into your SaaS so that your SPV or your development company only gets a smaller portion of the gain and anything that goes into the SaaS is therefore not taxable because the SaaS doesn't pay tax. So if you're looking at planning gains, consider having a SaaS, especially if the SaaS has cash in it and your trustees are open to you uh, doing joint venture and overage agreements. Some are, some aren't, but if they are, you can shelter a big portion of the planning gain into your SaaS. And I think that's a really cool way of doing developments. So that's just as a, as a side note, as a side benefit. The fifth question we have, uh, Lloyd, is from tax implications, bracket savings point of view, is it best to have SPVs or any limited company as part of a group as, or standalone entities? So, so to start off with, whether you have an SPV or not, uh, a limited company is an SPV. Uh, and SPV, uh, it just means that it's created for a special purpose, i.e. for doing a development. The real question is, okay, if you've got different sources of income, uh, should they all be separate companies or should they be part of a group or a holding company? And that's pretty much the question that you've asked. So the answer, as always, uh, Demir, is it depends. Uh, and it depends on obviously what you're looking to do, uh, what the situation is, who are the partners, if there are any partners, are they joint venture partners, are they equity partners, are they lending money to you? And then above and beyond that, purely from a property perspective, is it going to be an investment uh, project or is it going to be a development project? So keep it really simple is if you're buying land, obtaining planning or with planning, building houses, you're going to hold on to them, rent them out. Uh, as bytelets, so build to hold, then you don't want that to be part of your group because uh, those uh, uh, the, that investment deal uh, means you you may lose trading status. Again, not keen to go too deep and uh, kind of confuse anybody or lose anybody. But if you have a group, you want to make sure it's either an investment group or either. A training, uh, a trading group. If you mix both, the likelihood is you may lose your trading status. If you lose that, then you don't get things like what I talked about earlier, very briefly with Lloyd. Is if you don't have a trading group, you cannot claim uh, investors' relief. You can't claim entrepreneurs' relief. There are other tax reliefs available to trading businesses which are not available to investment businesses. So let's assume all of your businesses are going to be trading businesses, then have them as part of the group. At the top, you have a holding company. 
uh, and it's just kind of a fancy name, if you can call it a fancy name, for a company or an SPV that owns all the shares in all the different companies that you own. So at the top, you've got holding, H Co, Holding Co, then you've got Company A, Company B, Company C, and so on. All of the shares owned in all of those companies, Demir, would be owned by the holding company. You would sit on top of the holding company, so therefore you would own the shares in the holding company, which means you control all the SPVs beneath it. And if you do a development, you sell those units and you've got money in company A, you pay corporation tax, then what you do is you can pass that money tax-free up into your holding company, close company A, and then move that money down to company B, C, D, E, F, whichever letter or number. The beauty of that for you is you only ever pay corporation tax on the profits and then you recycle the cash into your next development because most developers, depending on their personal circumstances, are usually keen once they've covered their personal expenditure to invest most, if not all the proceeds into future developments. You've seen with the stuff that Andy and Lloyd are doing, you've heard with a couple of examples I've shared with you is we're always looking for the next two or three or four deals in the pipeline. Uh, so I would always advocate having a holding company structure. I, it, it's got a lot of efficiency in terms of moving things around uh, and it, it's a good way to do deals. You can bring in partners in a specific SPV. So let's say company D, Demir, you own 50%, Lloyd owns 50%, your holding company would own your 50% of the shares. Lloyd can either use his SPV or his holding company to own his 50% of the shares, or he can own them individually with himself or with Andy or with his uh, wife or his partner. Uh, so at the moment, you only own one property. Sorry, H is for... Hamada. So Hamada, uh, the good news for you is obviously that's below uh, the stamp duty land tax threshold uh, and because you don't own uh, more than one property, you don't attract the additional 3%. So you, you can move that into a limited company. Uh, what that therefore means is uh, if you buy your next property, which is going to be the property that you live in, i.e. your personal residence, you won't have to pay the additional 3% stamp duty land tax on that property. Yeah, sometimes people have a single bike let in, the, in their name uh, and then they don't own their own home and they say, I want to own my own home. But obviously because I've got, got the bike let in my name, my own home will be, will be my second property. I'll have to pay the additional 3%. I'm, I'm buying that for 400 grand, by the way. That's an additional, let's say, 18,000 pounds a year SDLT. The figure is not 18 grand, I'm just using that as an example. It's an additional 18 grand in SSDLT. How do I avoid that? You avoid that by moving the first bicyclet into a limited company, then you buy the second property in your name, and then you don't pay the additional 3%. If you, however, buy the second property, you've, you've still got three years in which to move the first property into a, a, a limited company, and then you can reclaim the additional 3%. So that's one thing for you to be aware of. The next uh, issue, which is the real question that, that you've posed, is would you be classed as a first-time buyer? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Hamada, I don't have any good news for you uh, because uh, a first-time buyer for stamp duty land tax purposes is somebody who has never acquired a major interest in a 
dwelling, uh, including their minor children, by the way. Uh, so children under the age of 18 who, who may own property. That doesn't apply to you because you have acquired a major interest. So a major interest is uh, a lease of longer than 21 years uh, or obviously outright ownership. Uh, so you have done uh, and so therefore you will not be classed as a first time buyer. However, I'd like to cover uh, two or three other uh, bits here which might help you or somebody else in the future. If you own commercial property or mixed use property uh, and then you buy your first residential dwelling for yourself, you, you are classified as a first time buyer as long as you're buying it in your own name and not in the name of a company or a trust. If you have an interest in a property but the, it is through a lease of, which is less than 21 years, then you're okay as well. Uh, if you buy, and this is an interesting one, if you buy a commercial property and convert that into residential property and then you live in that property and then you decide to move out of that property and buy a second property which is going to be your new home, then you are classified as a first-time buyer because the rules state that, that, that you should not have acquired a major interest. So when you bought the first property, when you acquired the first property, it was a commercial property. So when you acquired it, it was not a dwelling. So therefore, and then you converted it, but that was subsequently, therefore you do not lose your first time buyer status. If you buy a piece of land, Hamada, and you build a house on it, and then you live in that house, for example, and then you move out of that house and you, then you buy a second house, the same rules apply. When you buy your second house, you are still going to be classified as a first-time buyer. But unfortunately for you, because you've already uh, owned a dwelling, uh, even if you move that into a limited company, you, you will not be classed as a first-time buyer, although you will escape the additional 3% charge. So sorry, I can't give, give you a solution to uh, become a first-time buyer. But uh, as a rule state, because you uh, already had a, a major interest in a dwelling, uh, that's going to preclude you from being a first-time buyer. If they gift the property to you, covered by their PPR, because there's no mortgage, there's no consideration, no stamp duty land tax for you to pay, that would be a significant number, by the way. So you're going to escape paying that too. Then comes the question of, inheritance tax. Now if they live in the property Amit and, and they don't pay you rent then that's a gift with reservation. Okay, uh, that, that is going to mess up the inheritance tax scenario. So if possible and again you and I can take this offline because I'd, I'd have to ask you a few more questions uh, to find you uh, a different solution. But the real simple solution for you tonight is if they can afford to pay you rent, then you take over the property, no capital gains tax for them, no SDLT for you. They then pay you rent to live in the property and, and if they survive seven years, you don't pay any inheritance or they don't pay any inheritance tax on the value of that particular property. So that's going to be your best way around it. The first challenge for you, uh, before we even look at the case, is when a stamp duty land tax return is filed, you can make an amendment within 12 months. 
that's the best time to make the reclaim. Uh, and, and we do a lot of these, by the way, on a monthly basis. Uh, and most of them, luckily, uh, are within the 12 month window, uh, John. Uh, so, so, and once you go outside the 12 month window, then you can't make an a, a amended return. Then you have to prove that there's an error or omission. And if your solicitor has incorrectly asked you to pay the SDLT, that is not an error or omission that HMRC are willing to accept. We've just two weeks ago uh, won a case on that against HMRC where we were able to prove the error or omission. And it was about, I think, two and a half, three years. So it was outside the 12 month window. Uh, so your one's going to be pretty difficult uh, to uh, fight or argue. Happy to have a look at it, uh, but it it's going to be tough. Just so you know, had it been the last twelve months, it would have been easier. Moving on now to your point about probate and uninhabitable. I it, are you holding on to the property as a buy to let? Okay, so the best. Uh, avenue for you would be for us to claim it's uninhabitable so if somebody's living in it that makes it really difficult to say it's uninhabitable because i know for, for mortgage purposes if you don't have a, a kitchen and a bathroom they classify that as uninhabitable unfortunately for tax purposes the threshold is a lot higher than that uh, and the simple definition is the property should not be classed as a dwelling which is a very high threshold so for example if the roof is missing that property is not classed as a dwelling if uh, it's got asbestos uh, in the in the property that's uh, that would be contaminated therefore it's likely it's not classed as a dwelling and that's based on the Bewley case so if you don't have a look at that you can do b-e-w-l-e-y Bewley case uh, if the electrics are missing, the plumbing and the uh, floorboards are, are missing and uh, some of the, the plumbing uh, and, the, and the pipe works missing, that gets us closer to the property being uninhabitable. So that's one avenue you could take. The other avenue, of course, is buying from probate. Uh, so if you buy from uh, probate, as long as the, the, the previous owner lived in the property in the last two years and you are a property trader uh, and so now i'm trying to rack my brains here and you spend no more than five percent on the refurb so five percent of the purchase price on the refurb which can't be more than twenty thousand pounds then you can use the probate sdlt rules to either not pay stamp duty land tax or to get it back so cards on the table john it's gonna be an uphill battle for you but again happy to take it offline uh, and and have a look at it for you i'll need some more questions yep yep that's fine so you've got company a and, and company b so the best answer i can give you is, is the answer i gave to demir which is if possible have a holding company structure uh, with, a, with a group because that saves you having intercompany loans especially if you're doing developments and, and the example I gave Demir was if company A makes profit uh, after paying tax 
it can then transfer the money into the holding company and move it down. Whereas obviously if, if company A loans money to company B, C, D or whichever company, then you've got to keep that company open because it's got an outstanding debt. Uh, so therefore you, you've got to file the accounts, dormant company account and you've got to uh, file an annual statement. So you've got additional compliance costs, which you don't need. Uh, so that saves all of that uh, for you. However, you're not in that situation and above and beyond that, you've got two separate companies and from what you just told me is one's a trading company and the other one's an investment company. So what you would do is your company one would loan money to company two and then you can charge interest uh, and once that, that debt gets re repaid, then obviously there's no interest to charge. So it's a pretty forward, pretty straightforward uh, formal uh, arrangement. Of course, if you own both companies and you're the only shareholder, or if you and your uh, life partner, for example, then it's okay. If you're giving it to somebody else, then you want to be thinking about uh, the additional security to uh, mitigate the risk of the debt. So are both uh, companies owned by you? Okay. Uh, so if, if, uh, and is the money being loaned from your main day job company. So, so uh, am I okay to assume that you're, 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 you're a contractor? Okay, so your contracting company would then uh, loan the money and it would be sensible for you to have some kind of a, a loan agreement setting out uh, the repayment terms and also the interest charge if you're charging interest uh, and also if you can have some form of security uh, or a debenture over the investment company, that would be good. That might not go down too well with your business partner, but it's always worth trying. So so, so if you charge interest, uh, you'll have to pay corporation tax on the, the interest element. That would go st straight in the, into your contracting company uh, and then you'd pay tax on that at the end of the year when you finish your accounts and then file your tax return uh, or you don't have to file tax return, but uh, you you have to pay the tax within nine months and one day of your year end. Now you'll you'll be if 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 you don't charge interest and you loan money and that money gets repaid to you, no tax to pay because you've already paid tax as you've said on your profits. If if you charge interest, then you pay tax on the interest element only. Yeah. So no interest, no tax. If interest, then you pay tax on the interest element. Uh, the simple answer in as polite as I can be, by the way, is you're pretty much buggered uh, because you've got to try and open a, a bank account with another bank and then apply for the loan. Now, Starling and Tide are pretty slow, uh, but they are your quickest and easiest solution in the sense that you can open up, a, up an account online. With some of the other banks, uh, if you can open up the account online and it depends on the size of, of your business and how, how they want to deal with it. If you can, then open up, up the account, run it for the, the next couple of months as long as there's no urgency for you and then apply for it. You don't have to run the account for a couple of months, by the way, but it's good to have some trading uh, through 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 that account and then apply obviously through the through your online banking for the bounce back loan. But generally speaking, what I'm finding is uh, 
banks aren't really keen to open new accounts, uh, especially if, if people are trying to switch. That doesn't apply to everybody, by the way, but from what I've seen uh, and what I'm hearing from bank managers, it is pretty hard to switch an account. But if you can do that, it's not impossible, so, so you can do it. But and if, so if you can do it, then apply with a, a new bank you, to answer your question, which you haven't asked, but to move from Metro, Lloyds have been very good, very quick. HSBC have been good. Barclays have been brilliant. And NatWest have been good. So pretty much the four major high street banks uh, alongside TSB uh, and Santander, they've been the sharpest and the quickest. I've seen money come through within 24 hours. The first three or four days, they were kind of slow. They were taking 48 hours. Now within 24 hours, the money's coming through. Yeah, while you do that, I think Yoko has said that HSBC have been slow as well, which kind of kind of backs up on uh, what I've said in terms of they are very, very slow uh, in terms of, of, of opening new accounts, especially for switcher accounts. Thanks for listening to Wealth Made Simple. You can follow and contact Shaz on the Facebook pages Entrust Property Tax and The Profits Wizard. You can also find Shaz on LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Alternatively, email him at shaz at aa-accountants.co.uk. Build your wealth by mastering money.